I'm Lisa Bontesumi, and this is the Ath Mindset podcast series on Sports Epreneur. This podcast series is a space for conversations with athletes, coaches, practitioners, and stakeholders in sports. And it's where those individuals share their perspectives, experiences, and thoughts on mental health in sports. Eric Kazimoff of Sports Epreneur is generously hosting the Ath Mindset podcast series on his platform as he deeply believes that these conversations are essential and deserve to be prioritized. This is the Ath Mindset podcast series on Sports Epreneur. Sports Epreneur, the content platform where sports, entrepreneurship, and mental health collide. If you are looking to start a podcast or create original content, you have to talk with the team at Sports Epreneur. I work with them and I vouch for them. It's that simple. Go to sportse.io to learn more. Hey, everybody. We are here with Jessica Bartley. She is the Senior Director of Psychological Services at the U.S. OPC. I will let her tell us what the USOPC and what her role is about, but I'm just so grateful and happy that she's here with us. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. So excited to be here. Thank you so much. So I have so many questions I've been storing up for the last few months. So we're going to get to it. (laughs) Like, hopefully I have, you know, have a really nice, cool conversation. So tell me, what is the USOPC? Yeah, so the USOPC is the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So we really serve our Olympic and Paralympic uh, senior national teams um, and then those pipelines and then kind of try to also help those particular athletes transition out of sport. So we kind of have a bit of a mix of goals, um, but that is really what we're primed to do is to be able to support those athletes at competition um, and also in life. And then as they're coming up and as they're on their way out. Perfect. Thank you for that. I know your current position you were recently promoted to in a matter of several weeks ago. So congratulations on that. You're welcome. And prior to that, you were in a position for the last two years as the director of mental health services. And so Tell me what, what is your role do? What's, what's a day-to-day like? Um, I know you have a clinical social work background amongst Mm -hmm. other types of backgrounds in your back pocket. So tell us what, what, what does the work look like? Yeah. So I came on, gosh, it actually was less than two years ago. It was about October Mm of 2020. Um, I had interviewed for a position to build out the mental health programming at the USOPC. And so I, Um, had been contracting. I was a faculty member at the University of Denver and been contracting with a number of Olympic um, sports. And so um, our sports psychologists who have been at the USOPC for decades working in the performance space had really been having to tackle mental health quite a bit and advocated to have um, a resource for mental health. And so I came in and built out the program. And so honestly, we started with crisis stood up in a mental health emergency action plan, stood up a crisis hotline, and then kind of tried to work backwards. And we're really trying to get to the prevention space now. And one of the things that came up, as you mentioned, the promotion was um, we decided to actually think of psychological services on a spectrum and actually invited sports psychology to be on that spectrum with us. So we do everything from uh, kind of mental illness and the mental health of our athletes, mental wellness, 
um, to mental performance and really slide along that spectrum. And at this point, uh, we're hiring some more um, mental health providers. And uh, we've currently got 12 um, mental health providers between sports psychology and mental health at the USOPC. That's amazing. It's so amazing. And like, well-deserved, well-needed. I'm glad you're at the helm of all of it. You bring so much experience and just who you are as a person. So the athletes are lucky. I know that, that the USOPC also created a mental health registry, which is where mm-hmm. you and I kind of got connected initially. Yes. Tell us how that came into creation. Yeah. So, um, I have to admit, I don't want to take credit for it. That was actually our (laughs) vice president of sports medicine. She had been really heading up our mental health task force. And there was a few things that came out of this mental health task force that preceded me by about six months is they did recommend hiring a director of mental health, um, but wanted resources and they wanted resources out in the community as well. And so that was really important to build out those resources Um, And so we had decided to have a registry of vetted mental health providers who have experience working with athletes. And so we thought it was important that athletes could go directly to this registry and did not have to go to their sport or did not have to go to the USOPC Mm -hmm. to get connected to mental health services. So we were able to kind of set a bar or a standard and say, these are really good providers and feel free to reach out to them directly and contract with them directly. That's perfect. I mean, it, it's, it's great. It's a great brain child. Uh, and it's, it's, I think really respects the personal and potentially confidential route that an athlete might take to go directly there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's on them if they want to share what, what they're working on from there. Yeah. So I think it's a great avenue mm-hmm. and way to go about it. And the Alliance for Social Workers in Sports is how I learned about it, how I learned yeah. about you. And it's so great yeah. that our organization partners with you mm-hmm. um, and that you're also a social worker. Tell me how that um, sort of purview or orientation helps you in this work. Oh, you know, I was um, injured as an athlete and I really got stuck. I didn't know what to do without sport and really lost my identity. And so I really fell into social work. We had um, an incredible program at the University of Texas called Longhorn Leaders. And it was basically athletes uh, who would go into the community and um, work with um, at-risk youth. And uh, there was actually a gang prevention program. Um, Hmm. So I started to get involved and I kept thinking like, this is really interesting. This is really cool way to think about sport. And so social work has really helped my lens with that understanding communities and systems. And, mm-hmm. um, I'm an LCSW. So I do a lot of that, like clinical work, um, as well, but I think that that's been really cool to come in. Um, I have some training in sports psychology, general clinical psychology, and then social work. And I feel like that's really led to a good blend of creating this programming at the USOPC to see it from different um, training lenses or degree lenses, uh, and just really be able to build it out and think really comprehensively um, through the training that I got through social work and through psychology. I love it. I love it. I I agree. It's a great blend that you get to kind of view the athlete in their environment and their spaces from, from a particular place that's totally informed um, and holistically informed. So yes. I, I appreciate that. Tell me more about your, your personal experiences as an athlete, as an athlete. Cause I know we all have some, a story behind that yeah. since we're in this field, especially as women, yes. tell me more about your experience. 
Yeah, I had a really significant injury in soccer and I did not have any resources that I feel like I can turn to. And I've, um, I always like to mention that there's a number of resources built out at the university of Texas now. Um, and there weren't a lot when I was there. And so, um, not only did I feel like it was, um, difficult to connect to resources, I actually felt like it was stigmatized in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, I really made it a mission once I stumbled into social work to be a resource for those that didn't have resources. Um, and then eventually figured out, you know, there is sports psychology and, and some of these different, uh, niches within the field. Um, and so I really have felt like I wanted to be the resource for athletes in a way that maybe I didn't have them or some of my peers in, um, college or some of the athletes I've just come across in my career. It's just being there to understand how to break down that stigma and provide resources that really meet athletes where they're at. I appreciate it. Hey, I didn't know you were a soccer player. I was just. And most people don't usually guess this, um, cause I'm five, four, but I was a goalie. <laughs> Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. I was very, very tall as a child, very (laughs) large child. And, um, as my dad used to joke, I took up the most room in the goal. So I was like, Oh, body image, all the issues you have later in therapy. Um, but yes, I was a goalie and, um, you have to be a little bit, uh, special to be in some of the positions (laughs) like goalie, catcher, pitcher, you name it. There's a few that, um, kind of lend themselves to needing additional mental health support. I mean, well, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, those positions are almost solo positions in their own right within a team, right? And there's a certain mentality and pressure and expectation that comes internally and externally from performing in those positions. And then as a female and as a quote unquote short female in the goalie position, a lot of those things, like you're talking about body image, mm-hmm. um, just your role, the, the leadership potential, potential role that you can be in all of that. Like how, how have you found that, um, the Olympians, do, do they come for specific needs and do they come by specific to their sport and their position? You know, sometimes they do. And, and sometimes I think you have to break down those stereotypes and just understand, you know, what a specific athlete needs. So we've been really trying to think about what are the different buckets of athletes where we can shore up any sort of holes. And so, you know, an example, we had unbelievably successful groups last summer of athletes who didn't qualify for the game. So imagine postponing Mm -hmm. the games participated and trained for an additional year and then didn't make it. We had groups after the games. Um, we actually had groups for, um, parents. Um, so Olympic and not for parents of Olympians, but Olympians who were parents, um, because it was really unique Mm -hmm. to be balancing a family while training for the Olympic or Paralympic games. And so we've continued to try to think about those. I have to admit, we haven't really built out anything based on position in a sport, but we are trying to think about different resources for different, um, athletes and their identities that they would have. Um, again, position makes a ton of sense, but we've got stuff around injury and concussion and eating disorders. And so there's lots of different buckets. Um, and we're still just in the beginning stages of building things out and understanding what the athletes really need. Mm -hmm. No, there's a lot, there's a lot there. And I think Olympians who are parents, 
um, is a huge area that I think often gets missed mm-hmm. and doesn't, doesn't get seen as, you know, a, a potential uh, vulnerable population that doesn't mm-hmm. get seen and recognized and um, acknowledged for all that they have to balance. I mean, yeah. imagine, especially, you know, if it's a, a birth mom, you know, or, or uh, who has been pregnant, like just the going to work and have to navigate that anyway. And, th- and then going to train as an Olympian is just yeah. a whole nother whoo, mind blowing yeah. type of thing. So Absolutely. I appreciate you having that. Um, let's get back to University of Texas real quick. So mm-hmm. they just were in the Women's World College College World Series mm-hmm. for, for softball. softball. Yep. Yep. What? I yes. watched every minute, every game. I love that they were the underdog. They were unseated. Yes. I love softball because my daughter plays, and so I always have an eye on some game or another. So yep. hats off to the Longhorns. Yes. That was amazing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> It was awesome. I mean, speaking of softball catchers, pitchers, all those specific yes. positions, I just, yeah. I just had to give a shout out. So in tw- the 2020 Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo, highlighted athletes like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka speaking up about their own mental health. How do you feel that these athletes sharing their personal stories impacts athlete mental health awareness in general? Yeah, I've had the philosophy that the more athletes. And I actually always try to say more notable, you know, people with platforms talking about mental health is going to continue to destigmatize and normalize mental health. And so whether that is an Olympic athlete or um, a celebrity or a politician, like you name it, anybody who's got a platform and can share about mental health, um, is going to, to work to help us destigmatize and normalize. And so I'm incredibly supportive when we have our athletes speak out, or again, I think it's anybody who has any sort of platform. I always really admire when they're able to use that platform to, um, really further mental health awareness. Mm -hmm. I agree. Absolutely. And it, it, brings people kind of out of the woodwork, so to speak, and be like, oh, if she or he can talk about it, or they can talk about it, then so can I, right? Yeah, It's just amazing in those, those different ways. I know that you were in the bubble in Beijing, Mm -hmm. uh, working the Olympic games and the Paralympic games. Like, Mm -hmm. what was that like? You know, it's still the Olympic and Paralympic games. It's incredible. Like the level of athletic achievements is just really absolutely incredible. And so I think it's really cool to watch athletes perform. Um, what I would say is, uh, you know, we could see between Tokyo and Beijing, um, there weren't spectators, there were these things. And I know that like it got mentioned and there were some stories around it, but it was really impactful, um, on athlete performances. And so, you know, as staff, I remember us trying to rally and be like, Hey, there's a medal ceremony. Let's everybody, as many staff as we can spare go because they don't have their parents here. They don't have their support system or their entourage. And so I think it's really helpful to think about some of those little things. And we were trying to be really attuned to it on the mental health side. 
um, to think about what we could do to keep morale up when they don't have their primary support or we, they are trying to avoid COVID. Um, so they're primarily staying in their rooms. And so we had board games and books. We had a huge library that we took over and had a bunch of books on, you name the topic, um, whether it was sports psychology, mental performance, or, you know, fiction, nonfiction, like we had a ton of that. We, um, we had iPads that we checked out. We had gaming consoles. Like we really tried to be thoughtful about a number of ways, um, to keep the athletes motivated and to, to continue the, the spirits of, um, the Olympic and Paralympic games. That's so creative. I love that. All those different ways to keep them engaged. Cause yeah, I mean, the bubble's there for a reason. It's because of COVID and no one wants to get sick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how do you still stay engaged, um, you know, in your sport, in the mental side of it, when you're like, yeah, in your, in your room by yourself. Yep. Um, so that's, that's awesome. Did you see a different kind of mental health presentation of the athletes during this time than maybe past Olympic games? Oh gosh. I mean, I feel like all of them are kind of a little bit different based on the location, based on the number of veterans versus rookies. Like I actually found that a number of our veterans struggled more than our rookies because they had a bar. They knew what the Olympic games or Paralympic games looked like before. And this looks pretty different. And so, um, I think those are some of the things that I noticed is that, you just saw some different things. And then there's others that were like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's competition during COVID. And so particularly with Beijing, so many of our athletes had been over in Europe competing. Um, they didn't have a lot or as many stoppages as perhaps our summer athletes. Mm-hmm. And so it was really fascinating to just watch, like some of them just kind of kept going. Um, yeah. some of the other things is, I, you know, I don't know if, um, anybody, was really watching, like, say, for example, cross-country skiing, the athletes were taping their faces because of how cold it was. So like, forget COVID. Um, it was, I saw that so chilly at times that it was impacting performance. And so again, I, I really do feel like every, um, games brings kind of a unique setting or sense. Um, and this one was kind of no different. You just kind of like lump COVID and some of the weather yeah. and some of the other pieces into it. And I think our athletes did a really good job of being flexible and adapting. Well, it's great. It's interesting because I think that, you know, it's another uncontrollable when we talk about mm-hmm. performance, you know, the fact that it's COVID in a bubble, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to follow, you know, the precautions that are in place and treat right. it as another uncontrollable, you know, piece of the puzzle. And if they're solid in their mental performance, they're going to treat it like that, like the weather. Okay. We're pivoting. We're putting tape on our face um, or whatever, like extra long johns. I saw like in the biathlon, they're Mm -hmm. shaking. It's so cool. Yeah. And you (laughs) just, how do you, you do what you got to do. Yeah. Right. And so I think athletes at the Olympic level have that mindset that like, I just got to adjust. I just got to make this happen. So that's a really, that's really great insight. I know the Paralympic games aren't as, you know, um, highlighted as much as the Olympic games. Tell us about that. Do the Paralympians, do they compete in the same sports as the Mm -hmm. Olympians? And are there any particular issues that they might experience, um, while they're competing than an Olympian would, you know, I, 
I feel like, um, for the most part, there's a lot of the sports that are the same. And so you're looking at ice hockey and then sled hockey or, um, looking at some of the skiing events. Um, and so a lot of the events are very similar. A lot of the obstacles with mental performance are similar. What comes up for me is by the time we had gotten through the Olympics and into Paralympics for Beijing, the weather had changed dramatically. Oh, so wow. it was like super, super cold to like slushy and not great. And Ugh, like, it was fascinating yeah. to even see that. I think for me, one of the things that was a little bit different, it was also the timing, but, um, the invasion of Ukraine. And so there was some political things going on that we had not had during the Olympic games that all of a sudden came up during the Paralympic games. And Mm. we often find there's a number of our athletes, um, on the Olympic side who are either active duty or veterans. Um, so you see that sometimes in shooting some of the combat sports, Um, that happens quite a bit with our Paralympic population too. And so to think of having some sort of war, if you will, during the Paralympic games, you know, I think it's trying to understand what those distractions, what kind of came up um, as far as the distractions or if athletes were even distracted, but there were things going on. um, Can Russia compete or all of these other things. And they were coming up in the middle of the games. And so again, you're just trying to tackle those as they come and, that was what really stood out for me with the Paralympic games is having to manage, um, kind of those world events when we are over in China. Wow. That's fascinating. I I hadn't made that connection and the timing of it and that it would flow over. Of course it would into the Paralympic Mm -hmm. games with the timing of it. It's also fascinating to learn that a lot of the Paralympians are veterans Mm -hmm. and that they, um, they're, abilities, physical abilities were changed because Mm -hmm. of their experience in war. And also, um, I'm sure some kind of triggering or PTSD or anxiety reaction to it, um, in a way that they probably didn't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's being attentive or attuned to some of those things that may come up and just being ready, ready to adapt with the athletes, provide the resources and support. I remember we thought about having some you know, group sessions or mindfulness sessions or trying to think of what kind of programming would make sense. And for the most part, the athletes were like, oh, we're focused on competition or, oh, we're good. Or we tried to do some check-ins, but I think there's a number of things where we just keep trying to get an understanding of what the athletes are needing, struggling with. And again, with our program being about a year and a half old, we're still getting a sense of that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's awesome. I mean, if we bring it to current times now, speaking of Simone Biles, Olympics, um, the Summer Olympics, we're talk, touched on the Winter Olympics. Now, Simone Biles and other Olympians, as you know, are seeking damages in excess of $1 billion from the FBI for not thoroughly investigating the sexual abuse of their team doctor, Larry Nasser, and now they're in those um, negotiations. Like, how do you feel about what's going on there? And what do you imagine could be some of the mental health challenges these ladies could be, could be experiencing as they move through these um, hearings and things? Yeah. I mean, I guess with everything kind of related to specifics, I mean, I always try to be very, very broad and not speak to certain athletes because 
I think the reality mm-hmm. is there's stuff going on in every sport and there's, there's mental health concerns in every sport. And so I think yes, us being able to provide really broad, um, mental health resources. I think that's wh- how we've tried to design things is, you know, not being too specific. I actually think that's probably our next step is we, um, we're able to partner with, um, Canada actually has a really incredible needs assessment that they started doing with their sports in the previous quad. So between Rio and Tokyo, and I think it's something that we're going to pilot is we've developed really, really broad resources. And I think now's the Mm -hmm. time we're going to start tailoring and start reaching out because I know that gymnastics has a much younger population, figure skating has a much younger population. What do they need? What do our Paralympic athletes mean? So in order to stay kind of like general, you know, I mm-hmm. think we're trying to, to really figure out how to meet the very most basic broad mental health needs. And for the most part, we've really been looking at anxiety, depression, disordered eating, sleep and drugs and alcohol. That's what we kind of added in our screen. And I feel like we missed asking about trauma. We, you know, that's actually, we're mm. using the IOC's mental health screen. Um, and so we did mm. expand it to start asking about PTSD. Um, we actually also added ADHD. And so we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly how to support, but we went in really broad. And I think, as I mentioned, we went in, let's, let's try to shore up crises, mental health crises first. Yeah. Let's work backwards. Yeah. And then now we're really trying to ask like, okay, if, if you build it, they will come. Um, now we're starting to ask those questions about what are you needing? What are you struggling? And as you mentioned, we've got this registry, we've got a a vendor contract with e-home counseling to do teletherapy. So we're building out, we've tried to build out these foundational resources and now we're going to start to go really, really kind of individual to the different sports. Yeah, that's amazing and awesome. It's great. I mean, like you said, you're responding to the needs of the uh, Olympians and Paralympians as they're coming up. Tell me if you were to give like, let's say you were at a conference and you were giving a talk to like up and coming um, clinicians who want to serve the Olympic hopeful um, and the Olympian or Paralympian or Paralympic hopeful, like what advice would you give to these up and coming clinicians or, you know, even expert clinicians who want to move over into that population and serve that population? You know, I think there's two pieces that I look for is one is, do you understand athletes? Do you understand, um, kind of some of the struggles that they come across? Um, and two, do you have good clinical training, like good, solid clinical skills, but I actually think it's, can be pretty simple, um, is if you have some of those things. So I had talked to an athlete in the fall and she had started therapy and was having some difficulties with her, um, marriage and the, um, training schedule and the travel schedule and all of the things were really Mm -hmm. difficult with her marriage. And she started going to therapy and the provider said, this is really causing a lot of distress in your marriage. You should quit sport. And those are those things that I'm like, yep, no, don't get it. Don't get it. And so I think it's, again, if it's somebody who has the good clinical training, the basics around what athletes typically deal with manage. Um, and those are those things I mentioned, anxiety and depression, disordered eating, Mm -hmm. substances, sleep, and I'd probably add trauma into that. 
get, get training in some of those specialty areas and you will be invaluable if then you can also really start to understand what it's like to live the life of some of these athletes. Yes. So I'm hearing that you don't have to be a former athlete yourself. Maybe you do because there's lived experience that you bring, but there's ways you can learn it, study it, research it, um, and get acquainted with the different cultures, even within each sport, um, the language of the sport, things like that, I think would be, I agree with you really, really important. So I think people, like you said, it's simple, (laughs) simple to go about it and, and to figure out a way that works for you to go about that and get that education information. So I really appreciate it. I appreciate all you're doing. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Um, Is there anything that I missed that we should highlight around the USOPC and the work that you're doing that you'd like to share or speak on? You know, I think I, I just, um, I really appreciate these opportunities because I think the more that we're talking about this, the more it destigmatizes and normalizes the conversation around mental health and just to know that our Olympic and Paralympic athletes are, are also just human and happen to be really good at sport. And so I think that's something that I had to learn very quickly is, um, you know, how do we think of these incredible athletes as human beings? That's right. That's right. Not just human beings. Right. But I know what you're mean, but like that, that is the baseline that that they've lived their lives in sports and have trained and that's their environment. But that like they, as one of my mentors say, they put in, you know, both their feet in their shoes, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they live lives, have the same stressors. I mean, have homes and families and bills yes. <laughs> much to, to people's misunderstanding and dismay, you know, Olympic athletes are not rich. Right. <laughs> I mean, they have to work two, three jobs yes. sometimes to, you know, make it work and still find time to train and all of that. So I think again, like having conversations like this and bringing light to it, that, that the realities of it, that in, in sports, a lot of times it's glorified for all the things that we see sort of at the outcome or competition, competition state, when there's so many things that have to go into preparation and so many sacrifices and compromises that someone has to make to get there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Again, I I look forward to staying in touch and just keep up all the great work and just thanks, Jess. I appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate it. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sportsypreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sportsypreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide.